Hello and welcome back to the Be Well, Do Well podcast. I'm excited today to have another conversation with a fascinating entrepreneur. Joe Templin is a human Kaizen expert and is on a mission to influence 100 million people to be better. Wow. I'm excited to be part of his journey. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thank you, Alvin. And having a B-tag, what Jim Collins called for good to great, big, very audacious goal, something that huge is one of the things that can really motivate us because when we're trying to build something, we often get caught in the grind. It beats us down, especially if we're not making a lot of progress or there's a coding error that delays things for a week, which we've all had happen, or a provider goes out of business or what have you with these disruptions, and we can get really frustrated. But if we have our eyes on this mission that's so much bigger than us, then it draws us and we figure out a way as the great general Hannibal, not from the 18, the original general Hannibal said, I will find a way or make a way. And that's one of the things about the entrepreneurial journey is very much what Nietzsche said. If a man has a strong enough why, he'll be able to overcome any how. And there are all sorts of pediments on the journey. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. And the idea of BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goal, there's so many things we can go with in that. But before we jump into the details of BHAG, which I really want to talk about, tell us what a human Kaizen expert is. Okay. So most people who are in manufacturing or engineering are familiar with the term Kaizen. Kaizen is the Japanese concept of continuous improvement. And it was really implemented post-World War II when everything was bombed out and they couldn't get new machinery. They had to get two decade old machines. So they had to figure out how to do the best with what they had and try and squeeze more out of it. And when Toyota came to the United States shores in the late sixties, early seventies, their cars were absolute dog crap. They were the worst POSs out there. Horrible quality, they broke down constantly. They were not really sexy looking or anything. But they also imported the concept of Kaizen, of this continuous improvement where anybody, whether it was a person sweeping the floors or the CEO or an individual on the line, could make a microchip and do a, literally almost like an A-B test from the computer world thing to see, hey, can we get a little bit better with this? And by adopting that mindset, they were able to create these very short feedback loops where they were getting continuous improvement. And by the 1980s, they put most Detroit out of business. So the concept of Kaizen was then adopted by every small manufacturer, whether it's Westinghouse, General Electric, big three automakers, everybody was using this. And then those were all over to software, really in the concept of lean. But we've never applied it to the most important resource in the organization, which is the human being. And so we've got all these different components of our life physical health, our mental health, our spiritual health, our nutrition, our education, our communication, whether it's within work or within the family. And life's chaotic when you have kids, when you have aging parents, when you have business, all this stuff's going on. And so things slip through the cracks. We don't pay attention to stuff because our focus is more on the business than our health this month. Or sick kids, so work takes a back seat for a couple of days. And we... If we can apply a little bit more focus to these different areas, we can start getting some incremental gains. And if you have tiny little improvements, even if they're almost negligent, they compound and they out. And that's part of the reason to the cover of the book. I've got this really cool bottom of your growth curve. You can't see the little 
jumps up and down all along it, but the, the long range trend, which is if you can get 1% better per day, the end of the year, you're 37 times better. Well, that's high unsustainable. There's a lot more too. If you can get 1% better per week at the end of two years, you're three times as good. So we can all squeeze on out and have this continuous improvement or this human Kaizen ultimately end up in a much better place by making tiny better choices. Oh, that's amazing. The title of your book is called Everyday Excellence? Yes. So I like that idea a lot because every single day, like you said, you can't do everything. And I've said this over and over again, is that I don't believe work-life balance exists, but you can be well and you can do well if you're focused on the be well side of it first, then they do happen so naturally without as much effort. It doesn't happen automatically, but without effort. And, and it's one of those things like the, in the airplane, the mask comes on down, you're like, take care of yourself before taking care of others. As my friend and right arm, basically Athena reminds me, I'm no good to anyone if I'm broken. Yeah. So I need to remember, all right, I actually need to sleep occasionally. I need to make sure that I'm eating well, or if I'm getting stressed out, I need to go for a run if my ankle can hold up because it's messed up again. So taking that little bit of me time, people are like, oh, I can't do that. If you take a 15 minute power nap in the early afternoon and get up and your voice is productive, then within 15 minutes, you've made up that lost time. And at the end of an hour, you're actually well ahead of the curve. So taking the moment to step back and reevaluate and invest in what you need to is basically a little bit of a J curve where you're, yeah, you slow down a little bit so that you can go faster and harder. How do you make these little elements of excellence in your day? How do you make those into a habit? So habits, one way of getting them is to create a habit stack like James Clear talks about. So we all get up, right? You wake up, you get out of bed. So that is the most critical time of the day because it sets the mood for everything. And typically when we're getting up, there's less chaos than there is all the afternoon. Kids are up, the phone's not ringing, you don't have to deal with all sorts of other things. So that first half hour to an hour is the golden time. That is when you can be the most productive and you can literally set the backdrop for the entire day. So I get up, I brain dump anything that was in my head. I read for a couple of minutes every morning, I, then I go and I work out because working out in the morning will help wash stuff out of your system. You've literally been laying down five hours, six hours, eight hours, however long you sleep. And so your brain is, even though you've been producing theta waves when you're passing in and out of sleep, you process stuff. You need to basically wake it back up, engage it. So exercise is one of the best ways to do that. If you look at an EEG of somebody after they exercise, the whole thing, absolutely awesome. And there's a reason why Sir Richard Branson says that number one productivity is exercise. So you go work out for 20-ish minutes to get everything lit up. Then I sit down and I write. I do some of my social media type stuff. Then I go and I work out again for another half hour because it's athlete. And then I'll write some more. And then I'll get ready for the rest of my day. So... I get up to play at four three by six o'clock in the morning. I've already accomplished more than most people are today. And then when I'm rolling into the office, it's like, boom, I'm already ahead of the curve. So instead of me playing catch up and trying to catch other people, I'm the lead. People are trying to catch up to me. And so it puts you in a very different state. You can achieve the state of flow much easier simply because the stress levels down because you already know that accomplished more than what most people had 
Yeah, it just pushes you know further and harder. I wake up at four between four and four thirty as well, and you're totally right that when it gets to about six o'clock, seven o'clock, you've already accomplished so much compared to an average person going into a day job that doesn't enjoy what they do. If you've got kids, then the kids are getting up and you're getting ready for school and there's COVID stuff all over the place. But that's how you started your day, you'd be all upset because there's no call over people at this point. But if you've already knocked off a bunch of good stuff, you've gotten that workout. Workouts actually reduce your stress levels. And so you're able to handle the chaos much better. Yeah. Yeah. True. Because you're not getting rid of the chaos. You're handling it. You're managing that chaos. You're good riding the wave of such. Yeah. Now, one of the things I struggle with is when I'm working in the morning and I've got my, I call it my MIP, most important block, 90 minutes in the morning where I do something. Sometimes, and I'm just looking for some feedback from you, sometimes I get stuck in the how versus the why. And at the end of that 90 minutes, I realized I was working on something that probably I could have outsourced to somebody else, my team members or a virtual assistant, and I shouldn't have been doing it. But it's sometimes so fun to do. Before we started recording, we were talking about how you and I are both geeks in that sense, like technology, everything. So sometimes I get stuck in doing these things that I enjoy doing, but I know I shouldn't be doing because I should be focusing on the why. And that's actually the hardest part is when you actually enjoy it. Yeah. But it's not the highest and best use of your time. When somebody else can do it 95% as well, or even 90% as well, they should be doing it. I'm telling everybody that I work with, say no more often because focus is saying no to things that you can be good at so that you can have the additional bandwidth to be exceptional at certain things. So I did the Warren Buffett exercise. It's where you sit down and you write the 25 most important things that you really want to accomplish. And then you need to go through and choose the top five and all the others. You need to get off your plate because they are just interesting enough or exciting enough or fun enough to distract you. And the good is the enemy of the great. And you can be good at those, but it's not going to be great. So I've got a saying, one minute of planning prevents an hour worth of work. Before I start my day, like I'll take care of that basic writing and some social media stuff because that needs to be done every night. But before I jump into the real day, I look at the schedule for that day, coming weekend, anything that's up and coming to see what's most important. And then I will take a couple of minutes and I will write down on an index card. This is how I manage my day for the most part. Not my big projects, but my day. I write down the three to five most important things that I need to get done that day. And it might be like, write this proposal. It might be follow up with this individual. It might be write one thing. So whatever it is, and as I'm going to my cross mark, and then I go and David Levin, so in the corner. But it allows me to be making sure that I'm not just busy, I'm productive, I'm focused on the right things. And once I get through that list, technically, I have achieved everything that I'm supposed to that day. I'm in the bonus round. And so if, depending on when during the day is, I will take the time and reevaluate, okay, what are the next priorities? And by doing this, do you get everything done? No, I mean, like my house is a mess at times and stuff like that, but I'm getting the most important things done. And I'm always looking with the Tim Ferriss idea. My word for the year, because I chose a word for the year, is deal. Just because I need to deal with all sorts of chaos and all that. But as Tim Ferriss talks about in where I work, deal, delegate, eliminate, automate, location, delegate. Okay. I've turned things over to people in my organization. I've hired outside people to take care of it. 
Because even if I have to pay somebody $1,000 a month to do something, but frees up 30 hours of my time, that is completely worth it. Okay? Delegate, eliminate. Do I need to be doing this? Do I need Buffett actually sign that? Yeah. Automate. Okay, my one coaching program where people get an email every single day, that's still about to be completely automated. I had to create what instead, I don't need to sit there and type out 100 emails every single day to send this thing out. It's built out. So again, a J curve there, take a couple hours to build out the system that then saves you a half hour. Hey, that's a tremendous savings of time. And L for location, what is that? So location, like it for Tim Ferriss, it's able to go and run your business from anywhere that you want. And so like I've got a good friend at Sturm from Commit Club. We're doing some work together on things. And I talked to him yesterday and the first question out of my mouth was, where are you today? Because a month ago he was in Bucharest, Romania, and then he was in Rome, and I think now he's in Spain. So he can do that. He's single, no kids and all that. I can't do that. My location, being able to do things, is to be able to respond to an email while I'm at Boy Scouts with the kids. Or when I'm at the lake house for the weekend, be able to respond because I've got constraints of aging parent, kids in junior high and high school, and these other things. So to me, I don't want to go and be, say, in Europe someplace to be responding because quite frankly, the, my kids and my family are greater than one. Down the road, yeah, I can be completely bohemian, but if you do the first three, the delegate, the eliminate, and the automate, then you can choose your location. Right now, my location happens to be my office because, you know what? I have no problem. In the beginning, we talked a little bit about BHAG, Big Hairy Audacious Goal. Your book, is it fair to say, was a BHAG at some point for you? Actually, it wasn't because when I look at a BHAG, that's something that's going to take years to accomplish. So like building a media get my hundred million mission, things like that. So that's where you're going to have to make all sorts of changes. You're going to have to bring in resources that you don't have. You're going to have to change your thinking, all that. Writing my book, the way that I got the idea for us, literally down in my weight room, tossing around a cowbell, listening to Jocko Willink's talk and listening to some Black Sabbath on another thing, because I multitask like that. And Jocko made a comment that excellence is a habit. And we're like, oh, habits need to be practiced every single day. I stopped mid-swing. Everyday excellence. I had the Satori moment. Vision, I put it down with Kelvin, ran upstairs, great dumped out for about 15 minutes. How I saw the book playing out with a little discussion and analysis around it, that an action for every single day of the year, intro, outro, and sort of stuff. Then I went back down and finished my workout. But since I had this vision, I'm like, okay, what do I need to do? Using a habit stack from James Clear every single morning after I did my brain dump. I'd do my first workout, I would sit down and I would write two days of the book. So I'd write January 27th to January 28th, then I'd go do my other workout. And so it wasn't a behag in that it was this monster life-changing type thing like running my ultra marathons war or getting the black hole or win a championship or anything like that. It was more like, okay, this is a process. This is something I just have to sit down and do this every single day you know, get through in a reasonable time. And that's how I was able to write a 700 plus page book, six months. Amazing. So you answered my question without me asking it, is when you have these big goals, how do you accomplish? And so you're saying it's chunk by chunk, small, just chip away at it every single day. And that's where that becomes a habit of daily work on that one thing that you're trying to accomplish. 
Right. And if you have a plan that when you go through it, it's going to reach it, that's great. Problem is if you've got a BHAG that is so huge, you don't know how you're going to get it. That's when it's really exciting because you're like, how the hell am I going to do this? What new resources do I have? What new thinking do I have? Who do I need to talk to? How am I going to go about changing who and what I am to become worthy of achieving this? And so if you want to be CEO of a Fortune 1000 company, okay, that's a BHAG and that's going to be a 30 year sort of thing. What do you need to be doing so that when you're 45, you're a vice presidential position? So by the time you're in your early 50s, you're in the C-suite so and get into the CEO position. What does it take? What do you need to sacrifice? What do you need to learn? What sort of investments? What sort of allies do you need to get? What sort of mentors? Who do you need to be mentoring? All these things. And so it basically involves reevaluating everything and saying, okay, I can't do this yet. Let me figure out what I need to do that. And what I just said, I can't do this yet. That's part of being able to harness the full power of your brain because People say, I can't do this. That is literally embedding in the subconscious. Nope, Rick won't. Versus, I can't do this yet. When you have a subconscious, which is really the vast majority of your processing power coming into play, saying, All right, there's a way to get on the other side. I'm going to figure it out. And so, being able to harness that by simply adding yet on the end allows you to, even when I'm running for 5K or if I'm down the weight, or if I'm playing with the kids doing something else, my subconscious is working on solving those problems to be able to get to said VN. I love that. The idea of the subconscious and almost tapping into these other things. You mentioned exercise, power nap, subconscious, using that when you're sleeping. Now, do you have any hacks or I don't I really don't like the word hacks. Do you have any advice or productivity tips for when people get stuck? Walk away from the situation. This is one of the things that uh, scientists and artists of all forms have done for all of human history. If you're stuck on a problem, put it aside. Personally, Katie Lippman and a bunch of others used to put their manuscript in a drawer, close and lock, and literally walk away. There's so many scientists that would go with Einstein. What would he do? He'd go for out and go on his cell and focus on that as opposed to working on the problem. Uh, I go for a run and my old business partner used to make fun of me because I'd literally run around the block. I'd come back and start writing on the whiteboard. And I'd go out and I'd run around the block maybe one or two more times. I'd come in and I'd write on the whiteboard again. And I'd be able to go and run for my actual run and come back and immediately go to the whiteboard because one of the things is that when you're working out problem, you're figuring it out, but the solution gets lost in the noise. And so when you're engaged in something else, that's not playing with the problem, whether it's listening to music, doing martial arts, running, meditating, playing with kids, what happens is that the neuroactivity around those connections actually uses. So those loosely connected neurons with the solution, you can actually hear the fire. You can find the signal of noise because you've damped down the noise. So instead of focusing and getting yourself all anxious and revved up, slow down. And so there's an old Pennsylvania Dutch saying, the 
hurrier I go, the slower I am. Whereas they say in the military, slow is fast, fast is death. Yeah, that's very cool. I've had so many insights when I go out for a walk in nature. Like I live in Canada and it gets pretty cold sometimes where we are. And I remember last year I had a problem, couldn't figure it out. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to go for a walk. Now it was minus 30 degrees Celsius, which is the same in Fahrenheit at that point. And I was bundled up. I even literally actually put on my ski goggles because when I, when it's that cold, your eyelashes freeze together. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. It's. Oh yeah. I'm near the Canadian border in upstate New York. So we get down to basically minus 20 on a roof every single year. Yes. I've been there. It's painful, but at the same time, you get a lot of insights just being out there in nature. And I think you're trying to stay warm at that point, or you're just focused on walking. And those insights do come to you. I love your analogy of how you get rid of the noise and then you can hear the signal in there. On a side note, I'm learning with my daughter who's eight years old, how to DJ. And we listen to electronic music and there's all these little knobs and turntable and the idea that you talk about where you turn down the signal, it's the same in DJing. When you bring two songs together, it's the same key, it's the same beat, but they're different songs. And so you're actually dampening the high frequencies on one song as you increase the high frequency or the mids or the lows, yep. and you bring it together and there's this harmony. One of the things is that with harmony, you have two different wave yeah. equations going, being the physics nerd. And what ends up is that you hit a harmonic on that. So you hit a higher order and you now create something new from it. And so that is one of the things of having differential ideas, different things going on is that it ends up possibly creating synthetic knowledge from it, where you've got these two or three different concepts coming together. You're producing something new off of it. You said something about physics right now. Do you have a background in physics? Yeah. My background is I was an applied physicist. So I say I'm a reformed physicist, Yeah, but I still approach the world very much from that sort of mindset because physics is all, what we did is we learned how to ask. Yeah. My engineering friends, they all learned to ask how. But physics and philosophy in the oldest days were the same. Try to explain the universe. So physics, philosophy, poetry, and psychology are all aspects of trying to explain the world and humankind's place and how we, they're all different components trying to answer the big question. This is so cool because I have read so many books about psychology, about physics, because I'm an engineer, but also about spirituality as well. Now, there's so much overlap between those. And it's rare to find somebody that can geek out about physics and spirituality, or if you want to think about like physics and law of attraction, because some people think it doesn't exist. It's not there. But if you go down to the quantum level and you start to look at things as energy waves rather than solid objects, physical objects, our brain thinks the same way. So I'm curious to get your insight on how your thoughts influence your environment. So if we want to go on the more psychology end of things, we have what's called the reticular activation system, which is the filter on our soft. It is how we program ourselves to look at the world. And we, as humans, have neuroplasticity. Our brain will rewire itself and we can work. So we are coding our own machine along the way. Something that people need to remember. You can code it to be negative, or you can code it to be positive and look for opportunities. This is the reason why people who are serial entrepreneurs will build a company, sell it, Go on out, sit on the beach for two days, and then they will have an idea because they see a problem. They go build another company and solve it. They just keep doing this. So people who are great poets do this. They get inspiration from anything, whether it's this coffee cup, 
or metal or an interaction with a pretty lady or what have you, they take that and they turn that into verse as a way of explaining some concepts. And so we see the world not as it is, but as we are. And so as we evolve and change and alter what we're looking for, then how we see the world works too. Back in the old days when we were wandering around, there were sacred tigers that we had to worry about eating us. A rustling lead was like, is that danger? And that's where our fight or flight response comes from. And then involved because we notice different things because of that. So we can train our brain to be able to notice ideas or concepts. So like I would use to, I used to train clients, hey, this is the person I'm working for. If you're a programmer, you notice a certain pattern like, oh, that's going to not fit in thing. That's going to bug my friends who are intelligence officers. They can, they say that they can spot a lie because there's a pattern, there's a changing pattern. And so we program our brain in certain ways to notice certain things. That's why people, as they get experienced in a position or a mindset, they become better and better. You went to engineering school. What was your brain like at 18 when you started, when you just had sheer raw power versus what was it like at, when you had your senior year, when you had learned how to think like an engineer? I, I, What's it like down the road? Yeah, absolutely. And I always tell people that I don't use the engineering principles I learned, but and university taught me how to think. And I can't articulate that other than saying before I went to university, I was basic in my thinking. And when I left, I was able to formulate thoughts based on lots of inputs in a correct and accurate way. I was able to accurately think, really, if you think about it that way. Right. And you're able to look at all these different components, find the relevant variables and be able to build some form of model on any scenario, whether it's something simple, where it's a linear thing, where um, I pour the milk, it spills on the floor. Okay. X equals Y, make a change there. Versus the multivariable thing where, okay, I'm doing this for work and this for this work. We got to tweak this. How does this get affect this output? Go ahead. That's just a higher level of thinking on that. But if you don't have that basis, you can't reach those higher levels of thinking. Man can't stand, he can't fight, can't fly. I've had so many conversations with people about entrepreneurial success and business. But one thing that keeps coming back over and over again is that those that accomplish a lot often end up feeling quite empty at the end. I hear this statement often that, did I work this hard just to work this hard? Or did I come this far just to go this far? In your opinion, what defines happiness? Well, so in my opinion, happiness is an output of what you're doing as opposed to the goal. So if you're chasing the butterfly of happiness, you're never going to catch it because you always need a bigger car, prettier wife, a newer trip. You're, it's the hedonic trend. So it's always chasing something. As opposed to, I believe it's more of loving the process. So it's an infinite game. For example, as a martial artist, I'm never going to be perfect. I know this. I'm one title, so you can see more like children back there and all this sort of stuff. But it's a constant process of trying to improve, of trying to get better, of trying to understand more. And as a scientist, the more you know, the more you don't. Because the era of our uncertainty on the edge of our knowledge continues to expand. And so being comfortable with that and yet at the same time being fascinated and pushing and growing the same way that a little kid is exploring the world, if you can maintain that, you're going to be really happy. Are there frustrating words? 
absolutely. Oh, this program's not working. That thing didn't go out to the clients. My kids built stuff all over the place. My ex-wife did this. My ankles messed up so I can't run. But those go again. You have, you have a strong enough why you can overcome it. How? If those are all just, okay, this isn't just something else for us to figure out and get through in the overall process. And then as Richard Frankel talked about in the search for meaning, you know, that moment when the rainbow crossed the sky. And so if you're chasing happiness, it's always going to be just beyond your grasp. But if you're loving what you're doing, you're going to find that happiness actually is threaded through everything. Have you always been this optimistic? For the most part, yeah. I mean, yeah. I've obviously had some not great periods, like during my divorce or covering from injury or like when my mom was sick and I care because that stuff sucks period. but you have to basically embrace the Stockdale paradox, which as Jim Collins talks about is life sucks, but we can get through it. It's a very Irish sort of thing. You know what? You might die tomorrow, but we'll be able to enjoy it. If it's not fatal, it's fixable. That chunk of code got to leave. It's a chance to make it better. Oh, I can't find this. You know what? We'll solve it. Oh, the computer's not working quite right. All right, so we'll do an audio call instead of it. So it's having that resiliency and just being able to know, all right, doesn't matter, we're going to get through. Has there been a moment, to, feel free to share as much or a few details, but has there been a moment in your life that happened where you made that realization that, okay, it is what it is, let's just move on? Yeah, so when I got married 20 years ago, uh, we went we on our honeymoon for a couple of weeks, came on back, and my ex-wife traveled for general work a lot, a lot. So we literally came on back and two days later, she was back on the road. This time she wasn't just going on the road. She was going all the way to Austria. So she flew from upstate New York to Hawaii, stayed with my sister for a day, then flew down to Australia and she was there for two and a half. During that time, I'm newlywed, I'm I'm studying for exams. And I ended up having, because of a lot of damage that I had accumulated over time with martial arts and all that, I ended up having this this gross, a testicular torture. It basically spun around and choked itself off and died. I had to drive myself to the hospital to have surgery. And when I woke up the next day and they were talking to me, they basically told me I have a choice between having kids or my dream of fighting in the Olympics. And so at that point, like, all right, there's no real choice. I've got three kids, my organs, and I sometimes they're running into my kids. You know what? I could trade you for old money. That's it. Thank you for sharing that with us. That takes a lot. And when you have to make those kinds of decisions, and I hope most people don't have to make big decisions like that, but inevitably- Everybody's going to have to make decisions like that. So. You think so? So you, the, as Walt Disney said decades and decades ago, when values are clear, decisions are easy. So my goal would always to be, then to be a great father. Okay, and yeah, it's been decades more than that, training and moving up the ranks and everything to be able to pursue that Olympic dream. But having the kids was more important. So it, because they were not close in terms of the value, because being a good father was so much more important to me, I just made that decision. And so a lot of the other things I've had, I had two special needs kids. My oldest and my youngest are both on the autism spectrum. My youngest is ADHD. My oldest is bipolar. So. I've had to deal with all these sort of things for roughly the past 13 years on top of everything else. And so I literally, my goal, be a good dad who 
before COVID hit and everything divorced, my wife was get up at four o'clock in the morning. I wasn't training at that point. Really. I could get 15 minutes training because I had to work until I had to get the first kids up, get them off to school, then get the second one up because they were on different school schedules. You know, so 840, he'd get on the bus. I could start working then. I'd have to be done with work by 245 when the kids got home. I'd be in full bed mode from then until 8.30 when they went to bed. And I had to have kids three different places every single day. Fuck me. I still work and all that because my wife was traveling everywhere at that point. And then I could get back into work. And so I'd work from 8.30 till midnight to get up 4 o'clock in the morning to repeat. Why did I do that? Because what was the most important thing? Being a good dad. Being a successful business owner was important, but not quite as important. So I did what I had to do for that because that's where my priority lies at that point. Now your priorities will shift. My kids are now older, so they don't need me quite as much and all that. So I can work. I've got the opportunity to be more flexible. So you do the best that you can at that point with the overall goals in mind. Yeah, do the best that you can with what you have at the time. I love that. Is there anything that your friends or people that know you would be something fun that they would be genuinely surprised to learn about you? Oh, you know, pretty crazy. People who know me a little bit actually don't realize that even though I'm like a badass martial artist, I come across really tough and all that and a lot of ways, and I'm this big nerdy dork and all that, I've got this love for poetry and writing and all that. So whether it's music, and I can't sing, so don't ask me to. But I appreciate music. I appreciate art, even though I can't draw a straight line with I actually can write in some capacity. So that's stuff that I enjoy. And so it's one of these things that helps create that balance. That's pretty cool. I got a little bit of that when you mentioned Black Sabbath, that <laughs> the suit and tie Black yeah. Sabbath, there's probably a different angle to this here as well. So one of the things is that we're all really like diamonds. We have all these different tasks. And one of the things that you find out over time with, as you get to know somebody better is you should look at them from different perspectives. You can see different aspects of them as a person. And one of the things that we should be doing is making sure that we all have our flaws. We all have faults. None of us are perfect. But we need to work on polishing those different aspects of ourselves to be able to present the full beauty of the jewel to the universe. And all too often, people are just working on one or two of those faces, as opposed to trying to work on many of them, which makes you that much better and makes you that much more brilliant and valuable. That's a great analogy. Uh, all of these little tidbits that you're giving here I'm, in my marketer's brain is thinking, man, that would make a really good blog post. That would make a really good social media. <laughs> Go ahead and steal them. Write them up. Write them up. That's awesome. I love your energy. It's really fun. And what's got you fired up right now that you're working on? So what's got me fired up is I'm a man on a mission. And my mission is to reach and really impact 100 million people for the, by my birthday, which is in July. So the goal without a deadline is just a dream. Got a goal and I've got the deadline. Reach 100 million people and positively impact them in some capacity. Because life sucks at times. And we've had COVID, now we've got war, we've got recessions going on, there's all this uncertainty, people are facing difficulty, there's all these negative pressures. 
So if I can, through my writing, through being on discussions like this with you on radio programs, people buying my books, whatever, be able to reach out and positively impact 100 million people, then what that does is that creates 100 million little nodes of positivity. And we all know about the butterfly flapping wings and creating a hurricane someplace else in the world. What if we could create 100 million positive of goodness, of positivity, of people helping other individuals out? If we can do that, then we can literally bend the curve of what's going on in societies today and make the world a much better place. And it's not through these huge movements. As Gandalf says, it's through the quiet actions of everyday people. So the little things. So one of the things I want to hear with you is go smile at five people. The reason why is when you smile, it decreases the cortisol in your own system. And it increases your dopamine, makes you happier, makes you slightly more intelligent. But because of mirror neuron brain, what happens is if I smile at you or if I laugh and get you to laugh, then suddenly you've gotten that gift also. You're healthier, you're happier because of something that I did. And it cost me nothing other than a couple of seconds. If it's going something that's just happening in the normal course of affairs, it's not even costing me part of my life. It's it because when you laugh, that you slow down the aging process. So every time you laugh, you basically add on that much time to your life. And so I've helped give you that gift. If you can now get that gift to half dozen other people, what's that going to do? I don't know. We can't necessarily measure it, but we can feel it. Awesome. That's awesome. That's a perfect note to end off on. And those that are listening to the episode, I hope you can hear the smiles in our face when we're talking about this as well. If somebody wanted to learn more about you and the amazing work you're doing, where can they find you? Maybe in the pub, but actually the best place to find me is if they go to my website, everyday-excellence.com. That's everyday-excellence.com. Every single day I put up a new blog post, podcast live there so they find this one and a whole bunch of other ones. It's going to be linked to the YouTube channel and TikTok. So there's just all these resources there for people to be able to help themselves out. And I recently launched a 28-day coaching program where every single day, it's a little bit of reinforcement and guidance and some accountability around it, ensuring that you're growing and developing. And people who are going through that program are doing things like giving off smoking and finishing projects that they had put on the shelf for six months or a year and spending a little bit more time with their kids and working out a little bit more. So it's micro improvements that ultimately help change the curve of their life to a much better place. Oh, that's awesome. And that's the free program on your website, everyday-excellence.com. That one is a paid one, but the three-day one is completely free. So there's hundreds of free resources. So paid ones, that finds my bureau. I link my bureau, obviously, in Irish. But there's all sorts of free ones. Use whatever works for you. This is all part of helping people out. That's awesome. I'll put those links down into the show notes for anybody listening. Joe, I really appreciate your time today, your energy, your attention in what we've been talking about. It's been really fun. Thank you so much. I really, I'm really grateful for having you on the show today. I mean, thank you. Be excellent and grow today. Thanks so much, Joe.